Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Today we're talking about community food systems. Uh, IATP has been running a fairly robust farm to institution program for several years, uh, but we do work in coalition with organizations around the state on uh, providing community solutions for uh, food security, for anti-hunger initiatives, and for creating systems that empower small farmers. Uh, we've, we at IATP have felt that this is a really strong alternative to the current global system of, of corporate agriculture. Joining me today is Aaron McKee, Program Director for IATP's Farm Institution Program, Marcus Schmidt with Second Harvest Heartland, and Eric Sanderud with the Central Minnesota Young Farmers Coalition. That background noise you're hearing is made us the office dog. <laughs> um, so Aaron, we'll, we'll start with you and then we'll turn it over to our, our guests from outside the office. Um, how did you uh, realize that IATP needed to be involved in coalition work from the farm to institutions? Well, we work on farm to institution programs um, and we have been working on state level policy for the last couple of years. And we, of course, farm to institution is a multi-sector uh, program in and of itself. So we care a lot about Farmers, of course, and the public health side when we're talking about the kids that are involved in our programs um, and building real community food systems to supply that food to those kids that supports everyone along the supply chain. Um, and we realize that we can't do this work alone. It's really important for us to work together um, and make sure that we're including the voices of everyone who is affected in the decisions and in the work that we make. Um, and so that is how we, we came to work with this coalition of um, multi-sector organizations from many different groups from across the state who care about these issues. Um, and just real quick, what do we mean when we say community food systems? I think it's really important for us that whenever we're talking about um, our programs, they reflect the needs of the communities that are dependent on them for the food that they eat. Um, and the community should be able to have a say in their food system and determine what it looks like. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all um, solution for every community. And when you're talking about the corporate-controlled uh, large companies that supply a lot of our food, they don't include the voices of the people that depend on them when they're making decisions about how to get that food to the people or what food will be supplied, how it's grown, um, what practices are used in, um, in its growth. And I think it's the, the most important thing to me in the definition of a community food system is that it reflects the needs of the people who actually are using that system to get their food. Yeah. And Eric, you're a, a farmer during the growing season most of the year, but then you also organize young farmers. And so talk about, you know, uh, how did you get into farming? How did you realize that you needed to organize other farmers? And then how have you guys engaged with the community food system model? That's a lot. Holy so smokes. I can, I can maybe break it. I'll follow up if I need to. <clears throat> no, Josh, I think we'll do it. But you just, you just help me if I'm wrong. Um, okay, so I got into farming because I wanted to make a difference, right? There's this, I'm sure it's not strictly generational, but a lot of millennials um, like the idea of making a difference with their life versus just a paycheck. Um, I am no different. And I found my way through to farming via environmentalism, via 
you know, progressive politics and identifying farming as a way that I could literally tangibly make a difference. The way that a farmer farms and treats the land that they work on um, is a direct reflection of one's values, um, much the way that a painter's painting is a direct reflection of that artist's desires. Um, there's also a long history in my family of farming that I was disconnected from, mm -hmm. uh, growing up in the suburbs and attending an urban four-year college, four-year degree to get a non-farming um, non farming certificate. But um, that is also extremely common of, yeah. of young and beginning farmers these days. That is um, now the exact number. Hmm. We'll just say the majority of young farmers in, in, a, in the latest young farmers survey uh, have that story of not growing up in a rural community, not attending a school for an agricultural degree, but now farming. Mm -hmm. And so when, when did you start organizing other farmers? Well, you get bored in the winter, Josh. <laughs> um, and, and also because there's a really pragmatic strategic reason for it, which is that things are not going to change if we're not involved in the processes and the games that are played. As much as the games are despicable and disrespectful and dehumanizing for a lot of our society, we have to play the game. I believe we have to play the game to get involved and make the changes. And when the new game is ready to be played and we flip the table and we kick out all the monsters, let's go. You know, like when we drain the swamp, let's go. Let's jump, let's jump all the way in. But for now, we're going to play the rules. Mm -hmm. um, how do you engage with the community food system? Well, I, uh, myself and our other, other members provide food. Yeah. We are the start of that food system. Um, I think that linear thinking is sometimes a challenge. So that, you know, I like the idea of systems and circular um, feedback loops, but also there is a beginning. Um, and for me, it's always starts on the farm and the farmer. And when I think about a community food system or a food system that I want to see in, in, the, in the future in general and compare it to the one we have now, I think the one we have now is tilted very heavily towards the consumer and the meat the, and the in between the person who makes all the money and the person who, who, who generates that last bill, that last dollar. Um, and I would like to see a food system that's far more balanced, um, mm -hmm. where the originator of the value sees much more of that value mm -hmm. than perhaps the folks in the middle or even the person at the end. You know, Marcus, um, Second Harvest Heartland um, is a food bank in its essential mission, right? Provides food to people who are um, hungry. Um, how do you engage with the whole food system um, in order to meet that mission? Sure. Um, I mean, that's, I think, uh, it's a more complex question uh, than it sounds. I think, you know, in terms of the hunger relief community in, in Minnesota, uh, Western Wisconsin, where we uh, also serve um, 18 counties, you know, Second Harvest Heartland essentially is kind of the hub uh, for food shelves, meal programs, and others uh, providing uh, food to folks. Uh, in the Midwest who can't afford it. And when we think about uh, what that looks like um, from just a logistics perspective, it's pretty it's pretty robust. When we talk about 81 million meals last year in our service area, well, which is 41 counties in Minnesota and 18 in Western Wisconsin, uh, we obviously have a, a problem. And that problem is we have too many hungry people. Um, we can't do this work uh, on our own. Uh, we definitely recognize our strengths and continue um, to find ways to uh, improve our service to our food shelf partners and our other agency partners and in communities who are serving these, these hungry folks directly. Um, but 
without a doubt, um, the, the level of need, if you think about it in terms of, of an economics kind of equation, the demand is, is still far exceeding the supply. Mm -hmm. And so I think we feel uh, Second Harvest Hardware is incumbent upon us to continue to try to increase the supply so that we're able to meet the demand. And I know we're going to get more into uh, what's causing the demand uh, throughout this conversation, but um, that's really how we yeah. look at um, just in terms of the service that we're providing. Right. Well, and just quickly on demand, you know, we're talking about community food systems. And, uh, you know, in 41 counties, there's a very broad uh, spectrum of what a community is or how they define their need for food, right? So what what are some of the major differences between a rural area and an urban area that you're finding, or even within urban areas or within rural areas on how the community food systems yeah. really change the need for different people that need food security? <laughs> so traditionally, I think it's something that, you know, folks still have, some folks still have in their mind that it's an urban problem only. Mm -hmm. uh, the food is grown in greater Minnesota and rural America, and it's delivered to urban areas so that uh, the folks who need it are able to access it. Uh, and that's just not the case anymore. And mm -hmm. I think what we see in terms of our network of agency partners um, in urban areas is the concentration mm -hmm. and the need to work uh, together with other partners uh, in close proximity to meet the demand. Yeah. Uh, in rural areas, we're seeing the importance of just having one effective partner right. out there and how important it is to have a, a food shelf that's open, um, that's able to be accessed by, by whether you know, it's a senior citizen uh, who needs a ride in order to get that food or it's a working family that has children in schools and activities after school and they're able to to access that in a, in a way that doesn't disrupt uh the activities uh, that are really essential to making that family we all have come together um in in kind of a loose coalition at this point to figure out what priorities are for community food systems in minnesota specifically um what are some of the basic priorities that brought all you guys together I, I think I would say um, something that we all think is really important is really getting these issues about food into the conversation when we're talking about our elected officials. Right now, these are not issues that are bring, being brought up in the debates at all. And clearly there are huge impacts of these decisions on everyone in our community. Everyone mm -hmm. needs food and we need to support our farmers to get food. And so I think what we really realized is that we need some kind of mechanism of bringing up these issues in the debate and um, collaborating so that we're speaking with one voice instead of individually bringing up our pet projects separately. And then if we have this platform that we've come together to come up with, it's also a way to hold our elected officials accountable after the fact. So we have something we can judge them against. Um, once they're in office, we can say, hey, you said that you would protect farmers and now you're taking this vote that is not doing that. And mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. call them out for what, what they said that they stood for and make sure that we're really bringing these issues to the forefront because they are so important for everyone in our community. I think that's one of the, um, main reasons why, even though we work in different sectors and have different priorities, um, this is something we need to come together on. Yeah, I would say it, it's history and necessity, and I think you know both Aaron um, and Eric touched on a little bit of this. 
uh, as well. But we think about the history of the Farm Bill and uh, kind of the, the marriage between uh, the folks who were focused primarily on, on food assistance and nutrition and the folks uh, who wanted to make sure that uh, the farm community was strong. And that, that goes back decades. I mean, when we think about the deal that was struck uh, between uh, Senators McGovern and Dole and how something like that today just seems so uh, so kind of impossible. Um, you know, it's it's been a marriage that's worked. I think it's been challenged at times. Uh, having been a former congressional staffer uh, who worked on two farm bills uh, that were both delayed because of attempts to, to try to uh, cause some conflict within that marriage, uh, we know that um, that the farm community and, and the food assistance hunger relief community need to, to stay together in order to get something uh, significant like the farm bill uh, done every five years. Can I ask, I think it's really interesting that we have the two of you in the room um, since sometimes there is this kind of, I don't know if you consider it a false narrative, but there can be some tension between the anti-hunger advocates and the kind of farmer advocates where there's this idea that, you know, we're in this society where we have a situation where there are people who can't afford to pay for their food but then we also have farmers who are not getting paid a fair price for the food that they produce. And I, I think it's, I would love to hear what both of you, um, how you respond to that tension, or if you see it as a, as a real tension. Uh, I don't see it as a real tension. Um, I think that it, um, it really simplifies what's going on and, 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 creates a, an identity of scarcity. It's, um, you know, there are plenty of people making um, truly great amounts of money uh, in our food system. Mm -hmm. And they are not your local grocer. They are not your local farmer. They're not even, <laughs> this year at least, any of the farmers, really. Dairy is bad, livestock isn't so good, and uh, traditional grain crops are, are underwater. Um, so I think it really, it really is a diversionary tactic. It's, it's, it's a very intentionally decided upon strategy and, and messaging to, to drive a divide that's not there. You know, it, pitting affordability versus against the livelihood is not a choice anyone should have to make. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to stand together and say, this is a false choice. And there is behind this false choice, behind this false narrative, there's more truth. Um, and there's, there's maybe more accurate targets for addressing the issues that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been a part of conversations uh, in greater Minnesota around, uh, you know, the Farm Bill and kind of, you know, some of these uh, intersections between policy issues and the community food system as, as, you, uh, as you kind of frame it, Josh. And, you know, what comes up more often than not is just kind of this notion of safety net, right? And whether it's um, farmers who are just trying to make sure that they have some certainty uh, over the, the years to come with what they're producing, or it's people in the community that really rely on um, on that food assistance and they're just trying to get through um, a rural economy that might be challenging for them. And so I, I agree uh, with Eric that it's really a false narrative. I think it's it continues to to exist uh, because I think it benefits mm -hmm. um, you know certain constituencies, um, right. especially when we think about some of the activity that's happening uh, in our nation's capital. But uh, at the end of the day, I really feel that you know, a strong farm bill 
um, and the kind of community food system, I like the way that you phrase it, uh, that is strengthened by you know pulling in certain policy levers is really a, a benefit to everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about some issues. Uh, what are a couple of things that you know at the state level, if they were to be put in place, would be good for farmers, people who are food insecure, people who are hungry, and other people within the system. So, for example, we have our farm to school bill, statewide farm to school policy. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, mm -hmm. what 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 are, what are your guys' ideas over here? Well, that farm to school policy is a great one, <laughs> and directly hits on both of these. But I'll be speaking mostly from the farmer benefit. Um, I think it's important that that uh, hunger advocates support things that benefit farmers, and farmers support things that benefit hunger advocates even if they don't directly benefit ourselves individually and really build the cross-sectionality to, to make sure that one, there's something that's up for either of our groups, other of our sides, other of our constituencies that, you know, there is a unified voice coming from the food system world. Um, locally, we are still kind of celebrating a historic win of a beginning farmer tax credit in the state. So this tax credit, took other states' tax credits and went a step farther and really to address the root issue of land access and land transition, right? Minnesota has just 3% of our farmers are under the age of 35, which is half the already dismal national rate of 6%. And so we have a lot of work to do to make sure that even just to maintain the farms that we have, we have the right people and we have people in place who are able to move into those positions and keep people in the countryside keep people on the landscape. Um, that is a, a crucial, crucial um, point for our communities and for our democracy that agriculture is, is a thing that people do and that their individual people will in charge there. And so that tax credit is something that incentivizes the transition. It says if you own farmland in Minnesota and you sell it to a beginning farmer, you get a tax break. The seller gets a tax, tax break. Um, it's a very, very exciting uh, law. We expect it to be very popular. There are already tons of questions coming in. And so I'll just mention that now so that anyone listening who owns land, knows someone who owns land or is themselves looking to get into farming is aware of this opportunity. When we talk about food insecurity, I think it's important to frame it, uh, you know, it's an economic argument. Um, it's something that, you know, hunger is costing the state nearly a billion dollars a year. Um, in, in health costs and education costs, um, with one in 10 Minnesotans uh, not having enough food to eat, one in six of those is kids. And so when we think about our future generations of workers, um, you know, kids who don't have enough food to eat, they're two times more likely to review grade, they're five times more likely um, to, to, you know, uh, to take their own lives, which is pretty serious when you think about kids and food. Um, and our, our community uh, as a whole uh, and their ability to deliver um, food for, for their children. Um, but, you know, I, I think when, you know, the devil's in the details, when we think about, you know, policy um, solutions as, as a way to, to tackle food insecurity, I think, you know, having, uh, having universal meals in schools um, and just getting rid of some of the stigma around uh, kids having access to meals and having to deal with, you know, some of the 
some of the, uh, the social pressures of showing up early to school in order to make sure that they were food in their belly for class or you know, having to go in a separate line or having to deal with uh, some of those challenges that you know, their friends and, and their, their peers know, uh, that, that their parents or their you know, single parent doesn't have enough food uh, to make sure that, that they're able to eat at school. I think you know, there's a lot of benefit uh, to something like that. I mean, especially if we think about if you can't you know, achieve universal meals, you know, some sort of school breakfast program that's available everywhere. Right. I mean, some of these kids in Greater Minnesota, I didn't have the last time breakfast to get to school. You know, it's been, it's been a while, they're probably hungry again. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, thinking about ways to, to make sure that our, our future generation of workers um, and contributors to, to our communities uh, are, are, are well fed um, is one area. Another is just sort of thinking about kind of food assistance and building on a program that has worked really well, which is SNAP. Mm -hmm. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, or commonly referred to as food stamps. Um, you know, it's, it's a program that it keeps families uh, out of poverty in Minnesota, but we're talking about family for that makes, you know, about $20,000. Right. Um, so the food assistance, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month, it helps. Um, but if we talk about, um, you know, adding a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, at the state level to support that, not only is that going to provide more food, uh, for for these folks, um, it's going to open up healthier options, which is going to be a little more expensive, uh, which contributes to better health outcomes and um, and healthier uh, healthier children. Uh, but also, it's an economic stimulus in communities. We know that about six hundred million dollars was uh, delivered to to Minnesota through the SNAP uh, program in twenty sixteen, and that fueled over a billion dollars in economic activity. So this is just cash assistance, mm -hmm. and that's going to local retailers, Main Street, grocers. Uh, who are able to hire people as right. a result of that. So it's really a win-win in terms of public policy. So, you know, you ask for a solution, so to be too. But I think, you know, Eric made some really great points uh, just about strengthening, um, you know, the, the farm community and making sure that we have another generation of farmers mm -hmm. uh, as well to provide some of the support to the, the broader community as well. And I think that, you know, all of that and looking at it through uh, comprehensive lines is really important, which is why it's nice to, you know, sit down with Eric and be able to talk about these things and, and think about the future. I think um, the point you make about economic impact is really important to remember when we are thinking about the cost of these different programs, but then the benefit and return of that investment is so huge. So when we talk about farm to school, there have been economic analyses that show that for every dollar that you're spending on farm to school where that money is spent on food from local farms, you're actually generating an additional $2.16 of local economic activity. And if you think of it that way, it's, you know, it's a huge investment in your local community um, and, you know, supporting people through that multiplier effect. Um, and so that's something that we're working on at the state level is actually similar to what you're saying with SNAP is trying to get um, the state to kick in a little bit of extra money for those schools and early care environments who are making the commitment to purchase some food from their local farms. Um, and so one of our policy priorities that we're working on is trying to get the equivalent of an additional five cents per meal um, given from the state to those those schools and early care environments. And that's something that other states have done really successfully. And Minnesota, we're leading in a lot of ways on farm to school and early care, but I think that this is, um, enshrining it in policy is so important for making sure that these programs are sustainable and that farmers can 
depend on the support from these programs um, and they're not just dependent on individual champions in the school who may retire or move on from their job and then the program falls apart. We really need policy to make sure that these are uh, programs that can continue and be dependent uh, depended on into the future. Mm -hmm. um, can, I, yeah, can I put a point on that, what the $2 of impact or the, mm -hmm. you know, the return on the investment that you guys are both talking about with uh, those programs, that translates into more farmers on the landscape, which is more butts in the pews, it's more shoppers on Main Street, it's more kids in the schools, and it's a larger tax base. So you can fix up that county road that has always been bumpy. You cannot make your, you can prevent your school from consolidating and now your kids got to do an hour and a half bus ride in the morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really meaningful things on the rural landscape to have more people there that can generate community. Mm -hmm. really. I, I think that's a really good point, especially when um, in our political discourse, there's been so much conversation about rural communities and kind of the divide and how people in rural communities feel alienated and not recognized and unsupported. And this is a real way to make a you know, commitment to them and invest in, in their infrastructure in their communities. So staying at the state level for just one more minute or so, um, we have an election coming up in 2018. We have a governor's race, we have two Senate races, congressional races. Um, but then also uh, the whole state house. Um, at the state level, what are you looking to hear from candidates uh, as they are going into campaign season? Um, you know, maybe maybe a question you might ask, but also just when you're you know they're doing candidate forms around the state uh, right now. <laughs> um, you know, at, at the uh, legislative level, people are starting to declare their candidacies. Um, what is it that you're listening for? I would love to hear the word farmer uh, <laughs> used. Perhaps food. Simple food thing. would be a good start. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have less of a challenge with that than at federal federal politics uh, for state level races. But um, more seriously, I think what what we would like to hear is to hear from them. We would like to speak with them about our priorities. We'd like to introduce them to young farmers. We'd like to introduce them to the next generation of, of agriculture and we're an open door whenever they want to talk about that. I think beyond policy platforms this next year, I would just really love to engage in a conversation with our candidates, especially in that governor's race, um, because there's just so much that a governor can do uh, to impact a state, especially Minnesota. And, you know, that conversation to me is about a lot of the things at a really high level that we've touched on so far, uh, which is how do communities and those contributing in those communities all stand to benefit by this individual's leadership mm -hmm. and not pitting farmers against, you know, food assistance, hunger mm -hmm. relief advocates, uh, not pitting, you know, greater Minnesota with, you know, the metro. Uh, but somebody who's just really interested in engaging in a conversation um, in all corners of the state and in Minneapolis and St. Paul about how we collectively can can identify these ways to connect and thinking about um, you know bigger policy solutions um, to drive that conversation. And I think our politics has just become so small mm -hmm. and it's so 
driven by the next election and sort of the gotcha stuff that we see. I would just really, I think it would be really refreshing to engage in that conversation. And I think it's really incumbent upon, you know, the folks and younger folks who are engaged in, in this advocacy space mm-hmm. uh, to drive that. Well, it's interesting to hear both of you uh, say b- both of your answers, because when we're talking about community food systems, a lot of what we're actually talking about is the community side, which is actually people knowing each other and understanding yeah. mm-hmm. individual situations. And what I'm hearing is that you really want candidates who are going to take the time to learn what's going on in mm-hmm. individual communities around the state and, and put faces to the statistics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so we, the group of us has kind of been coming up with a, a caucus resolution um, collectively, which we're still working on. And once it's available, it, it will be um, made you know, public for people to bring to their caucuses on February 6th and present and support our issues. Um, but one of the very basic things that we came up with in that, that platform is that we'd like to hear our elected officials say that they'll consider the impacts uh, to the local food system when they're making decisions. And that's a really basic thing, but just um, that this is something that they will consider. Because as you say, if they haven't considered it, if they haven't engaged with the community, um, then it they, they can't build a community food system unless they know what the needs of the community are. Mm-hmm. And so we're not asking in that for a very specific thing, we're asking for a general consideration that this be part of their process when they're thinking of new policies. Um, this is at the forefront of their mind and how it will impact the people that depend on, on them for making mm-hmm. decisions that protect their food system. Great. Um, so we're coming into a farm bill here, 2018, at the federal level. Um, you know, Marcus, you've talked about the, the desire to drive a wedge between the uh, people who are working on different um, chapters of the Farm Bill. Um, what, uh, um, what organizing is being done in Minnesota, but then also at the federal level, to uh, counter that, to keep the coalition together of, of food and farm advocates, um, and to make sure that um, we are a united voice for whatever the priorities are being. Well, I think there's there's definitely a group right now, um, and we've mentioned you know some of the different organizations, but uh, I think there's a lot of um, interest and enthusiasm around a farm bill that works for everybody, and thinking about how we're able to achieve uh, a farm bill for all is going to require that we come together uh, and we're able to engage our congressional delegation and our policymakers um, and you know candidates uh, about what that would look like for um, for folks uh, in this part of the country and you know that's definitely something that's not pitting one group against another it, mm-hmm. it really is going to require that we think about uh, some of the, the priorities that Eric mentioned how we how do we cultivate uh, the next generation of our growers mm-hmm. uh, how do we tackle hunger in communities across the state in a way that um, that doesn't exploit people and and builds uh, those local economies up. Um, but I think so much right now uh, of the discussion at the national level in Washington is negative, and it's uh, it's really hard to break through. And I think uh, we have a real opportunity in Minnesota to do things differently. And I'm just excited about the the potential. Uh, 
probably the next year. I don't think that a farm bill is going to get done mm -hmm. between now and the election. Um, but I think that the conversation is really important. And I think coming out of that election to hit reset uh, for folks maybe to come to the table a little bit more authentically mm -hmm. uh, in Washington uh, to engage in a discussion about what a farm bill well, I think the point that that Marcus has talked about at a at a at another time of of needing people who are advocating for a farm bill versus deal making, um, we need advocacy and leadership on this issue, and not the calculated political um, quote unquote leadership um, that can be seen in the farm bill discussion today. Um, there are serious challenges when you think about the demographics of who produces food in this country. Um, it is a monolith of predominantly white male farmers who are old. The average age we're all familiar with, we're pushing 58. I'm sure in this next census, we'll be pushing 60. Um, at some point, those folks are not going to be able <laughs> to continue to farm um, as much as they're going to want to. Um, Everyone in agriculture knows. I was at a farm bill meeting the other day with a lot of representatives of agriculture. There are so many more people. When you sit there and you look, you're in agriculture, you look ahead of you, long line of people ahead of you. You look behind you, not that many folks. And so who is going to grow the food? Who is going to be on these farms? Who is going to be representing at the USDA, at the MDA? Who are the people who are gonna be in charge and creating influence in our food and food and farm discussions in the future, there's just not enough people to go around. 3%, 6% of farmers under the age of 35 is not enough people to make up for the 94% that aren't. It's, it's, it's extremely simple, it's extremely, it's extremely bleak, um, and truthfully, the urgency isn't there. Young farmers is barely, and, and the next generation of farmers is barely uh, an issue that's discussed, and what it is, it's 100% it's lip service, and the will, to make any moves that would address the drastic issue is not there. You know, we do have some hope though, because it's also not a deeply politicized issue. There is still a chance for major reform, for major moves to be made. And that's where we think it's our job to lead that and to work in coalition with other folks who have an interest in continuing to have a strong agriculture in this country. I think um, as far as specific things that we're looking for in the farm bill definitely those those twin priorities of making sure we maintain that vital safety net um, for minnesotans in need of food support and providing those crucial resources to the small new and emerging farmers um, and the community-based organizations that are creating strong and sustainable food systems that meet the needs of rural and urban communities so this is the language that we have in a collective sign-on letter that our coalition has come up with, um, which we can also share. And we specifically are asking that they maintain support for the National Institute of Food and Agriculture grant funding. Um, that includes the Community Food Project and Food Insecurity Nutrition Initiative and the Agricultural Marketing Service Programming. So that includes the specialty crop block grants and local food promotion and farmer's market promotion. And then, um, of course, the Food and Nutrition Service funding. So that includes Farm to School and WIC um, Farmers Market Nutrition Program. Um, so those are very specific mm -hmm. 
asks that we have in the larger context of the conversation that we're having here. And we've talked about activities and over the coming months we're going to hit every congressional district uh, as a coalition and we're going to work with um, folks in local communities uh, to drive those discussions and hopefully we'll have some participation uh, from our elected officials uh, and certainly our candidates for office uh, mm -hmm. so that we're uh, to Aaron's point, able to engage them early and hold them accountable. Um, and that's our role as advocates. And I think you know, any elected official uh, who is worthy of the office should expect uh, to engage in that discussion. And anyone who uh, shies away from it, um, you know, probably should look for other work. <laughs> and I'm really excited because I think people in the community are very engaged right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel really motivated um, and maybe are engaging more deeply for the first time. And so we are asking anyone who's listening now, please engage with us. We need your help. You know, we can't do this without you. Um, as we've been talking about, we need the community to be part of this solution. So especially, I think uh, we are asking people to engage with their, their local caucus um, process and to keep, you know, mark your calendars for February 6th so that you can go and present your own resolutions um, and we'll make ours available if you want to present one of ours. But we need you to be part of the conversation, not just us as advocates. Um, we're, we're trying to speak on behalf of our community, so we need community engagement to make that authentic. Hopefully by the time this podcast goes up, we'll have all the links to caucus resolutions and coalition priorities and this, maybe the sign-on letter will get on the website as well. Um, so Aaron McKee, Marcus Schmidt, Eric Sander, thanks a lot for joining me today. Uh, you've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. For more information about what you've heard here, including what I just promised we put on the website, you can visit www.iatp.org. Thanks for listening.